Hi everyone, welcome to the Absolute Jiu-Jitsu Debate. We discuss using ideas from sports science and other performance sports to improve how we train and develop in Jiu-Jitsu. All of this was originally released on video, where we often put graphics and diagrams over the talking heads. So if you want the full experience, check us out by searching Absolute MMA St Kilda Melbourne on YouTube. Otherwise, enjoy the show. I'm here with Lachlan Giles discussing key topics surrounding our long-term journey in Jiu-Jitsu. The aim of this series is to take Lockie's experience as a coach and high-level competitor and compare and contrast with what is happening in other sports so we can find new ways to improve and develop over time. In the last episode, we talked about the importance of goal setting and how it can be used to get the most out of your jiu-jitsu journey as you progress through the belts. In this episode, we're going to discuss building a game in jiu-jitsu and tailoring it to fit our individual circumstances. So Lockie, going back to the belt system, uh, you know... I know you, you, you said you had your own idea, but Salo talked about a blue belt being the area where you experiment and find your game. Um, first of all, like, what would you consider to be uh, the, the key elements of someone's game? What is it that they're looking when you're saying someone's, you need to develop a game? What are, you, what are you really saying to them? What are you telling them that they need to work on? Yeah, I'd say um, when people talk about a game in jiu-jitsu, it would be predominantly um, an area you want to direct the the fight to, um, you know, for, for example, you, you would have a game from a, a guard game essentially. So like a, you know, which would be like, or, or assist, you know, it's, it's kind of like you have, you have a system from guard and that's your, your game from, from guard or maybe your games, your, your top game and your, so your bottom game, which would be your guard game. And then you have a top game, like a passing game and then potentially a, a um, control and submission game as well. Um, you know, uh, so obviously, it's probably one thing that I'd say not, not maybe not unique to jiu-jitsu, but you could, um, that can vary so much. Like you could have two high level, um, jiu-jitsu people like, you know, world champions even, and you could compare their, their list of techniques that they actually use to a high level. And maybe there's almost no crossover, <laughs> um, but for, you know, if, if we took like, um, Bernardo Faria, um, for example, and, um, and maybe Rafael Mendes, like so, you got someone who pulls deep half guard, does the over under pass, which is um, Bernardo Faria, and he's very specific that he's just trying to get the fight there. He'll, he'll direct it to that point. Um, and then Rafael Mendes, who would would basically play Berenbolo and never let anyone get near a, um, a half guard position on him. Um, and then even on top, he'd be looking for leg drags or going to crab ride to the back. And now uh, probably the only area I'd say they start to collide their, their two games would be um, on the back potentially that, you know, they might, they might share the, the, the idea of taking the back and potentially getting a, a choke collide. I'd say Huffer Mendes is certainly more uh, aimed towards that. Uh, but yeah, so it's, I mean, it can vary a lot, but I'd say it, it comes down to like their, their um, preferred positions in, on top and bottom. And so thinking about that, how do you describe your game? Have you got like a, specific thing that, you're, that you tend to play um, mostly from top and from bottom and also maybe your takedowns do you have like a certain thing you favor there yeah so let's say okay yeah so i've got to talk about takedowns but yeah uh, takedowns like I, I quite like the the underhook and trying to set it up off that um so trying to set up my attacks getting the underhook and then you know work to front headlock or um or single leg or, or double leg off that um, from guard, that, that's actually changed a lot over time. And I feel like there's actually a few, quite a few different guards I could use potentially at a high level. Um, 
uh, and I have used it as a, at, a, at an international competition level. But at the moment, I, I'm predominantly focusing on K-guard uh, and getting to the legs. And then I suppose my submission game would be um, the 50-50 <laughs> heel hook. Um, uh, passing, I would say, I again, I, I actually think passing is a funny one because I gave Bernardo Freer and Huffa Mendes an example, but I think a lot of good guard passes actually really try to mix up different passing. I, I almost think it's hard to be an effective passer without you know mixing up over, under, and around the legs passing. But, I mean, my favorite way to pass is, is probably if I can get a good knee-through pass, you know, cross knee-through, but I think that's just because it's, I believe, maybe one of the most high percentage ways to, to pass the guard. Um, and then for finishes, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I'll, I'll say, yeah, I'd say leg locks. I'll go with that. But I, I, I like the back, but, uh, you know, I, I, I'd say I'm much more likely to finish from with a leg lock. And, and do you have like a specific strategy that you go for? Because one thing that I personally yes. noticed about your, your game um, your, your, or your ADCC thing is that when you, when you lost your, when you lost your fight in your, in your weight category is that I think uh, Lucas, it was Lucas Lamprey, right? He, he pulled, yep. uh, he pulled guard, he pulled guard on you, right? And I wasn't expecting that because yep. I was thinking, oh, like he's going to pull guard then he's going to work his leg lock game because of stuff we talked about. And then suddenly yep. he didn't do that. So yep. uh, do you also have like a general strategy for what you're trying to do when you go out against different people or is it, um, or is it always the same? Yeah, I can talk about my, my, ADC, my ADCC strategy was, um, actually I, I didn't mind if I was on top or bottom. What I wanted to be, where I did mind, and you, you would have seen this in that match is, what I wanted was to be on bottom when points start because mm-hmm. an easy way to lose is to uh, be on top when points start and get swept. So I, c- I could eliminate that and make it so if we start the, the match when I'm on bottom, the only way to lose points up until overtime would be to get my guard pass, which unfortunately happened. But uh, I was trying to eliminate one mechanism for loss there by making sure I was on the bottom. I didn't mind if I was on top because I – uh, like the four points because um, I, I can start attacking, like going for sitting down into a leg lock um, and I don't lose points if they come on top from that anyway. So uh, that was sort of my strategy there. And then if he wasn't, if he wasn't going to pull guard, I was going to pull guard myself, but I wanted to see if he would first, which he did. Um, and then, yeah, my strategy was to try to get to the legs and finish with a leg lock and, and basically keep doing that until overtime. And then if it goes to overtime, try to wrestle. And then, you know, depending on how, I felt the rest of the match was it would probably determine how aggressive I would have to be with my wrestling attacks. If I felt like I was losing the whole match, then I'm going to have to be very aggressive to try to get the takedown. If I, if I felt like it was an even match, I could probably be a bit more, uh, not cautious, but just like, you know, make sure I pick the, the right moment to, to do my attacks. And you talked earlier a little bit about how you're quite good at a number of different cards and uh, you've learned to do a few of them. Like, how has it changed over time? Has it changed quite a lot? Have you literally gone from one guard to something completely different, or, or uh, you know, how has it how has it changed? Yeah, so I mean, I, I pr- probably at brown belt, I was predominantly a Berambolo guy, and then uh, probably yeah, then I switched to being a single leg X and X guard guy at some point. Um, half guard is something I worked on for a while, and eventually I. I start, especially in the gi, I, I kind of, um, uh, I mean, if you watched like World Pro maybe three years ago or so, I competed. I um, was playing a lot of half guard then. Um, so that became my main guard. And then now it's like kind of K guard and, and um, those 50 50 entries from there. So uh, I've probably never, never really been a, um, 
close guard guy. <laughs> um, not that I, I have a game, but not like uh, not one I would I would try to bring as my A game at, at a, in a competition at this stage. Yeah. If I landed there, I'd maybe try something because there's no harm in trying from there. But I'd probably more likely to open my guard. I've even played spider. You know, I had a time where spider guard was my probably early black belt. Uh, and even if I fight bigger people in in the gear, I'll often play spider guard just because double feet on the biceps kind of keeps a good amount of distance. So. Um, yeah, I, I've kind of was had a, del, a deliberate um, approach to make sure I actually got good at those things to, to the level where I felt I could use them in, in tournaments. But is that, as we talked earlier, I don't know if that's the best approach. I think it's better to kind of stick with one thing, but I actually find that a little boring. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the, that's the big question. That's the big argument is whether or not you should have a broad range of skills and you should specialize or if you should go straight to specialization and, and, and there's great arguments on both sides of that. And this is one of those questions where no one really knows the answer yet. And uh, through, t- through time, people will come to uh, a better decision or a better understanding of that. And in terms of, you know, your game changed over time, do you see any common trends in how people's games change? Are there certain things that change in people's games you tend to see over time or not? Yeah, I would say just very, very this is very general, but um, like younger more athletic people will, will kind of have this Toriando, um, very aggressive Toriando style and um, kind of, which, which I think involves a lot more speed and power. Whereas the, your older jujitsu players tend to, to focus more on half guard. Um, so that's why I really like half guard just because I think anyone can do it. You know, that's, that's why it's hard. <laughs> I think that's why it's really good. Like anyone can do it. You don't have to be, you know, flexible or, um, have any particular tall or short or whatever you can, you can use half guard. Um, but downside of that is also everyone you roll with can play half guard. So it becomes like people are used to defending it. Whereas not everyone you roll with can, can kind of put their foot behind their head and have these kind of weird guard retention things that a lot of the light feather, like the light featherweight competitors might have. Um, so they have this advantage that it's hard for people to prepare for them. And do you think like that change from being very explosive uh, when you when you start off uh, and you said and then maybe people moving towards half guard? Do you think that's like a necessary change? Do you think as you get older you you, you do need to change your your style or why do people do that? Yeah, because I think it's um, I also think injuries get in the way as well. Um, you're much more likely to get injured playing that that fast style. I I think a lot of those people end up just burning out. You don't see them again. Um. Whereas the, the people who play us, I, I kind of, I would say I deliberately made a, like, you know, this would have been 10, 12 years ago. I deliberately made a decision to not like play a very explosive game purely for the, for the longevity side of it, um, which probably cost my immediate, um, you know, it was at, at the detriment to my immediate um, performance as a competitor, but perhaps you know, it's paid off because, you know, like 12 years of skill development and still having a body that I can um, compete at a high level at is, is means I was able to kind of rack up, you know, add to my skill points and maybe stay somewhat okay in the strength department, but not very good in the explosive department. <laughs> um, it's a bit of a trade-off there. Yeah. As a coach, that's one of the key things, you know, the key, to being good in anything is to do it for a relatively long period of time. And if you're constantly injured or you have a significant career ending injury, then that obviously is going to put, put a, a spanner in the works. Right. And 
Absolutely. Especially, especially something like jujitsu, you do have to be super careful because you can get some very bad injuries. And I don't know, we'll probably talk about this in a, in a later podcast. We talk about injuries, but the UFC did this very interesting study where they looked at injury rates and where it comes from. And, you know, obviously they've got injuries in, in, in training and injuries in competition. But in training, the majority of the injuries came from wrestling takedowns, you know, from yep. explosive stuff where you've got body weight falling on people, etc. So, yeah, that's, that's been my experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's simple strategies that you can do to, to increase the chances that you're not going to get injured. Of course, anyone can get injured at any time. But, you know, if you change the game or the way that you practice and stuff, and we'll talk about that when we talk about practice strategies as well, that obviously you can stay in the game longer. You get more actual time training properly where you're not compromising yourself. And therefore, over, time, over the long period, which I guess you have to talk at least like five years to be elite, right? Uh, to be truly elite, probably. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. Then you're just going to get more training in, aren't you? So as, as a coach, like how do you help someone decide what their game should be? Like, do you have any specific tips there or what would you say? They might already have a game that I'm trying to work around anyway. So if, if, if I wanted to steer them towards something else, I would try to choose something somewhat adjacent to it because there's games that make, they might already have a game and I want to give them something else that I think would suit them, but there's no, like they're kind of then going to have to like forget their old one and do their new one, which a lot of people won't like but you can often find ways to bridge you know, into that. You know, there's connecting techniques that can take you from their old game into their, into their new game. So that's for someone with, a, with an existing game. If it's someone who's had a, a clean slate and you could just choose it, then I would, I would go off their height, their flexibility, um, whether they want to do gi or no gi, um, and whether they're strong, age probably as well, um, what their goals are, like, you know, like you know, if you don't want to be a competitor, then probably um, playing a guard where you're going to get stacked all the time might not be that good for your body, but it, it might actually uh, be a necessary requirement for someone who wants to be a high-level competitor and wants to play an open guard that's going to be the most you know likely to to improve them. So yeah, I'd say flexibility, height, um, age, and goals. And I've probably forgotten something I said earlier, but. <laughs> Are there like any specific games that you kind of focus on? Like, do you say, okay, this guy should play half guard, this guy should play single X or butterfly, like, or, or someone should play Dele Weaver, Burn Bolo? Like, how do you, how, what do you see yeah, as, okay, as yeah. being those factors and yeah. what are the prerequisites for them? Yeah, okay. Well, maybe I'll list some guards and I'll, I'll you know, some, some are in the extreme and some are not. So, like, if you're extremely inflexible, then I would say deep half guard might be the only guard you can play. Extremely inflexible. And even basic half, like underhook half guard might be too much for, for some people, um, especially if you're overweight. So a lot of people who are like quite overweight struggle to actually sit up and, and get like a good underhook and they can play deep half guard kind of flat on their back. Um, uh, if a little less, you know, you're, you're inflexible but not so inflexible, then you're going to start being able to play butterfly, you're going to play um, half guard. You can probably get away with reverse de la Hiva as a defensive guard, but probably not like offensively all the inverts and so on. Um, then we get into like media, like your average person. I think you can actually, you know, the average person can invert from reverse De La Hiva. They can play De La Hiva and, and invert. They can play, um, no, I wouldn't say spider guard yet because I think that actually then, what, as soon as you start going to like lasso and spider, I expect people then starting to have like very good ability to pummel their legs, more flexibility, um, you know, flexible hamstrings, being able to post their feet on the mat to prevent their hips lifting when they get stacked. Um, close guard, I think is going to favor people with longer legs just because of the, the, the triangle threats and actually open guard as well. If you've got long legs for triangles, it's going to be good. 
Um, uh, sit-up guard probably generally slightly favours like a shorter, you know, someone come up and drive through on a single leg and kind of get underneath and, and give very small gaps. I think it kind of uh, suits them better. K-guard, which I'm working at the moment, probably medium, mid-level flexibility. Um, I think if you're unflexible, it's probably not. Um, I mean, you can do it. It's just the... You have to bail early if you if it's not working. Um, whereas if you're more flexible, you can kind of keep at it even if you you're kind of getting on some funny angles. So, uh, yeah. Uh, and then like if, they, if you're getting older, looking towards like the half guards, I think it just kind of slows the pace down. You, you're trapping one of their legs so they can't free it, and you, you kind of slow the roll down a lot. Uh, if you're f- on top, then you've got like tall people are going to love knee cuts and toriandos. Shorter and stockier might prefer to like close the gap and get in for like you know, half guard passing, under the legs passing, anything where the, the distance is, once you close the distance, you kind of make it hard for them to uh, disengage. So um, that's me rattling off the top of my head, but it's roughly like that. Another area that like uh, I think traditionally has been interesting, right, is that traditionally you haven't been able to do toe holds and knee bars and, and stuff until brown belt. And obviously uh, you have heel hooks and all the other stuff that you might do nogi. At what point do you think people should uh, you know, should really start to learn this kind of stuff? Do you think you should wait to purple or blue belt, or do you think it's something that, that now with the modern game and stuff should be something that should come in earlier? I think you should learn what they are, but I do see you do see people kind of um, not progressing as fast as this would be a good answer to one of your previous questions. But like, who will sit back down for let's say ankle locks all the time instead of learning to pass the guard, which is a classic example of something they could have got a lot better at, you know, that like passing the guard takes a long time to get good at and requires a long time of working. And if you delay that by um, going for just leg locks or on top, then you kind of delay your overall progress, I think. Um, yeah. So heel hooks. Yeah. I, I would probably, I think it's better to learn like the personally, I think it's better to learn the, the traditional positions first and then add the leg locks a little later. But maybe I'm only saying that just because that's how I did it. And I, I kind of, um, I'm, I'm thinking that the way I did it was the right way, which could be completely wrong. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes the way to shortcut it is actually just do what the current people are doing now, you know, like try to work the current game and, and all at once. Maybe, maybe there's a, like I talked about that concentric circle sort of thing, and maybe the leg locks should be, and the heel hooks should be included in that, um, from day one, I just, I worry that people put their focus on that and then actually don't work the whole concentric circle thing. And they just kind of try to, f- to focus it on there. And then that actually can be quite detrimental to the development. I think, um, knee bars and toe holds. Like, so for me, like IBGGF, I would probably, once they get to purple belt, they're going to, I would, I think they should be rolling it in the gym at purple belt so that when they hit brown belt, they're very aware of what's happening there. Um, and they probably should learn it at blue belt and, and earlier. I think even at our gym, we, we allow from blue, but kind of, we assume once you're blue belt, you can do, you can do all of that sort of stuff. Um, you know, toe holds and, and knee bars and stuff, not, not heel hooks in the gi cause there's no real tournaments that, that use that, but, <laughs> but pretty much everything else. Yeah. So it, outside of jujitsu, like sports, would you say there's anything that uh, is equivalent to having a, a game, you know, is, is there anything, is, is there anything as varied as, as what I described where, um, you know, it's almost like people are fighting two different sports against each other. <laughs> yeah, I think this is one of the key things that differentiates jiu-jitsu from many other areas. And I think it's one of the great things that makes it such a good sport is because essentially between the belts, the weight classes and the type of game you can play, 
there's something for everybody. That's what one of the things I would say differentiates jiu-jitsu from everything else. Having said that, pretty much every other sport that I've seen, athletes exhibit some kind of different type of style. And also, they also respond completely different to different types of training. So let's just take high jump, for example. High jump is a closed skill. There's no one else involved. There's nothing else. It's just you and the bar and can you jump over it? But still, even within that, everybody pretty much uses the Fosbury flop where you go over backwards. But even between that, there's like people that rely on what we call speed jumpers who rely on being fast when they run up and they have a different set of requirements for training and people which we would call power jumpers who are more, tend to be more strong, less, less springy, let's just say, and they tend to use more muscular power and need to be stronger when, when they jump. So they have different requirements both in terms of their technique slightly and also in terms of the type of training they do even something as simple as sprinting which seems uh, like everyone would do it the same there's people with different qualities maybe they're dominant in terms of um, how fast they can turn their legs over or they're like stronger and they can project themselves to the air between strides uh, more effectively so everybody has like something that's a little bit a little bit different the second thing is how people respond to training like physical training and also uh, like technical training there are people, there was a huge variation here. Let's just look at physical training first. So there's a very famous study where they gave um, the same a group of people, uh, different people, the same training program for a period of time. And afterwards, they test them before, they test them afterwards, and they looked at the results. This was like an aerobic uh, type of training program. And what they found was using the same type of training, you had people that got worse, actually got worse over the period of the, of the, of the trial, but also people that improved between 10 and 15%. So doing exactly the same training, had a massive change in the results and this for me is like the the take-home message and the thing that performance sport is doing in other areas which is how do you individualize the training to the individual athlete uh, and it's also like on a psychological level on a tactical level on a technical level and on a, on a physical level and as a coach i would divide types of training environment into three broad areas right so i'd say the first training environment which is the one that you might see a, a, a um let's just say a basic club where they're more focused on recreation is basically unstructured training. Even with unstructured training, when you don't have any goals or anything else, you're going to get better, right? Let's not pretend that you're not going to, it's fine. That's why people who have no goals, whatever, still are capable of, of winning at a high level, and especially when a sport is young, they're able to do that. The second training environment is what I call a sport-specific training environment. So this is where the person has sat down, looked at the sport, looked at what you need to win, and essentially create a system or a program or something that covers all the bases so that the vast majority of people that go and train with them will get better and, uh, and systematically get better. And the final one, the one that everyone's focusing now on in elite performance sport is an individual specific training regime, whether that's as within a, within a team sport or an individual sport. Even within a team sport, let's say, how do you individualize training? Let's say you're playing a, a team sport and you've got defenders, midfield and attackers. Maybe you're going to individualize it between those groups or or between players who share different uh, physical characteristics or whatever. But how do you individualize training? And that is essentially the, the idea. This is where you start to think about the person's game. And that is essentially what everyone is trying to do. That's what everyone's developing. And it's why as you develop a, an interdisciplinary team, a team of people that doesn't just include a coach or a technical person, it includes a physical person, it includes a mental person, it includes uh, a physiotherapist, something, that's where you're all trying to work towards. You all have goals and you're all trying to work towards developing that athlete from those different areas and finding what works best for them in each of those areas. Yeah, I've definitely, I mean, uh, I've, in terms of structuring our sessions like that, I have thought about doing like um, by weight division, you know, like classes by weight division. Um, it's always hard though, just because you might, you know, like where it gets hard is 
I think the outliers, um, for example, if you look at a Bouchesha or even a, a Kainan Duarte, like he kind of plays a, a featherweight game at the heavyweight division. Like he can invert and do all that sort of stuff. And if I were to lump him in the, the heavyweight class and teach things that I would generally expect your average heavier person to do, um, then he's probably actually going to miss the technical progress put in the in the lightweight um, class, <laughs> except he doesn't want to tra- – he shouldn't train with just the light – he should be training with the heavyweights but learning the lightweight techniques because he has the attributes to be able to do it. Uh, so then I suppose another way would be like you know, divide the class by flexibility and so on. But then that, that you run into the issue of, of training partners then. You know? Like if you, if you teach based on body type, um, then the – you might not get as much crossover between like like the flexible people might all train together and then the non-flexible people train together and they don't actually get used to dealing with other people with different game styles. So it is a tough one, but I, I think that's probably a, a, a something I've thought about a lot. Well, not, a, not a lot, a lot, but a, a bit. And I, I would, I, I want to take that a bit further as, as the club continues to, I think you need a, a big enough club as well to actually be able to implement these sort of things, like a broad enough range of people to be able to uh, implement something like that. But yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's something I think we'll hopefully touch on and some strategies for doing that in, a, in, in future podcasts. So, Tom, how do you go about helping athletes find out what works best for them in, in your field? I've talked about the fact that individualized training is like something you're trying to do. And, and just like in jiu-jitsu where you've got a class to teach and then you've got individuals to teach, of course, the same things apply in every other sport. Um, some are easier to work with than others, but Essentially, what I would say to anybody is the first thing that you should do is you should make a profile of the athlete. You need to understand the athlete as best you can. Uh, and this can take time, but you, know, you need to understand them from their physical perspective, from how they learn skills, from, their, uh, from the health perspective, from all their behaviors and what, and what things motivate them. Motivation being very, a very key thing as well there. So you have this profile of the athlete and then you build the training program around them. And obviously, you, know, you might have this idea, just like you said with Kanan, right? Where you say, okay, He's a big, strong guy. He's fast explosive, whatever else. So I think he should play this game. But the thing that separates all these things out is that this is a, a complex system of all these different facts. You're not just working on one thing. You're working on many different things together. And so the strategy, and we'll talk more about this in a, a future podcast, the best strategy for solving these types of problems is experimentation. And the, the strategy that I personally use, or the one that, uh, that I use that's, quite, that's being made quite famous, is a strategy developed by a guy called Anatoly Bondachuk. Um, he was a famous hammer coach. Uh, and before he was a hammer coach, he was the Olympic gold medalist in the hammer. And he was a world record holder. And then he went on to be a coach for the whole of the uh, USSR when it was back uh, under communism. And then he coached the guy that was the world record holder in the hammer afterwards. And he has a very individualized strategy training where essentially he creates a program initially that he thinks is the best program for that athlete. But he doesn't just stick with that. He then experiments and adds new different things in that might be a little bit strange you know things that you wouldn't try thinking and he sees how the athlete responds to that and then he adjusts the training program over time so over the first three or four years that he works with someone of course it's easier to do in the ussr than it would have been in a country now where people are free to move around and do whatever else but he would essentially tailor the program over a number of years to find the one that works best for the athlete and then essentially even once he's found the, the training program that works best for the athlete he still experiment with other things before the major competition he'd come back and he'd do the one that he knows is the most highest chance of getting the outcome that he wants especially around peaking for that, that major performance. So they are the two kind of things that I think we can talk about more in, in the future, but certainly things are important, creating a profile 
and then finding a way of experimenting to find the best training program for that person. Very good. So, you know, we've talked about all this long-term progression, but for me, the, like the one question that I really think is interesting, because for me, I, I, I've, I've like, I found I've been training for quite a long time, obviously recreationally, I'm only training three, sometimes I trade five times a week, sometimes I train twice a week. Now I'm training zero times a week, but, uh, you know, I, I've been training a number of times a week and I feel that, that everything's moved on so quickly as I, uh, as I trained and almost in some ways I've been standing still. Do you think it's harder now to become a black belt now than it was, let's say in 2008? Well, for me, it takes the same amount of time. So I just had this, I, you know, I've kind of always thought it takes 10 years to have, to get a black belt. So, um, I kind of have kept that the, the amount of time, but I think, you get there, you, 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 the black belt now will be way better than when I was a black belt and, um, and then going back again from when I started. So there's just so much more information out there that I think um, the expectations are much higher and there's no excuse to not be better because they've got better training methods and, um, oh, I think anyway, um, there's better training methods and more information, better techniques. So the actual thing, I think the ways we learn, even the basics now, uh, are still evolving and, you know, and, and knee through pass now is better than a knee through pass 10 years ago and so on. So um, I would expect that, you know, in, in half the, you might be able to get as good actually in half the time as you would have maybe 10 years ago, um, but it still takes 10 years. So you end up maybe twice as good. <laughs> yeah, that would definitely be my, uh, that'd be my experience for sure. I see some of these young kids coming through and I'm like, wow, they're so much better than I was when I was a blue belt, for example. Yeah, I, I, I made a post about this the other day, but when I was a brown belt, I went, and I was one of the top brown belts in Australia. Like, uh, you know, I was, it was probably when I'd started to take competition a lot more seriously and I was, um, you know, I'd won some things in Australia and then I went and trained at Cabrinha's uh, in LA and, and like the blue belts there were giving me a really hard time. And I'm like, oh, well, there you go. There goes any international aspirations. <laughs> you know, like, um, these blue belts are really tough. Um, but they took their training very, you know, they were training basically like full-time athletes more so than I was, you know? Um, and so that made me kind of, uh, renewed my focus. I say, okay, well they're doing that. I'm, I'm going to do that. Um, and, and that actually helped me improve a lot. Yeah, for sure. And of course, finding faster ways to improve and, and drive jujitsu forward is a key reason behind this discussion series. And I guess here we've been comparing uh, what most of us do in jiu-jitsu with what's happening in other sports, but we mustn't forget to go and see what other clubs, what teams are doing if we want to stay as up-to-date as possible. So I guess that's all the questions I have for this episode. But to briefly recap uh, what we touched on, I think we started off by talking about how jiu-jitsu is, is very unique as a sport in that there are many different types of games that you can play. And this can result in matchups where essentially each party is bringing completely different weapons to the table. Lockie then gave us quite a lot of tips on uh, how to choose a game that seats each person's individual unique attributes, but also explained that he thinks it's really important to keep experimenting and being creative because essentially often a unique style can be, can be an advantage as it certainly was uh, in, in his case at ADCC. We also talked about the importance of consistency in training and to keep in mind that if you're going to play a very high-paced or physical game, then this could result in greater risk of injury. And I guess in future episodes, we'll talk a little bit about how we can adjust our training, etc., in order to minimize injury and, and improve the chances of everything uh, working out in the long run. Finally, Lockie gave his opinion on uh, the fact that in general, he thinks it still takes most of us uh, 10 years to reach black belt. 
but that over the years, the standard for new back belts has improved and will continue to improve as techniques evolve and the quality of the training gets better. And I guess the only thing for me to add there is, of course, that reaching black belt isn't really the end of our jiu-jitsu journey. And I think Lockie's insight into how he is continually working to improve his skills is a good reminder that we need to keep a higher goal in mind beyond just getting to black belt. And especially with younger players coming up, I think this is going to become increasingly important uh, as the higher belts and the older jiu-jitsu practitioners continue to develop and, and learn new things as the sport evolves. So hopefully you enjoyed the discussion today and the format that we've been using, comparing what Lockie is doing in his training with what I see happening in other sports. We're hoping this is going to kick off a bigger discussion about how to improve jiu-jitsu so that people can get better faster and we can continue to grow the sport. As always, let us know your thoughts in the comments below. And remember to subscribe to the channel and hit the bell so you get notifications whenever Lockie releases new videos. Thanks for watching and I hope to see you around in the future. So that's it for this episode. If you like the podcast but want to see the diagrams, you can get the full experience by searching Absolute MMA St Kilda Melbourne on YouTube. See you in the next episode.